0: Well, this, uh, this Advent season, we have been in a series of sermons uh, that we've called God Came Down. And we've been looking at stories uh, from the Old Testament where God appeared to his people. Uh, you learned a big word that can help you in Scrabble someday, maybe, uh, the word theophany, uh, divine appearing. And so we've looked at these appearances of God throughout the Old Testament because what we've seen is that the story of the Bible is really the story of God's increasing movement, his downward movement from heaven to earth. His coming after his people in order to live his life with us. Him coming down to us in order that he might elevate us uh, to his own life. Uh, Of course, culminating uh, in his ultimate descent in the person of Jesus. Uh, And so this morning we look at a story uh, that may seem strange to us. It's a story uh, in, in uh, Second Chronicles, starting in chapter 6, uh, that shows uh, the king, an ancient Near Eastern king, the king of Israel, a man named Solomon, having completed construction on the temple of God in Jerusalem. All of chapter 6, uh, they spent seven years building this temple. And then all of chapter 6 is one long prayer that God would fill his temple. That this elaborate and beautiful temple that they've built wouldn't sit unoccupied, but that God himself would come into his temple. And so, our scripture reading uh, today starts in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, uh, and if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Chronicles 6,
1: verses 40 through 7, verse 3. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love.
0: Thanks. You can be seated. There's a, uh, there's a rock band uh, that I've been enjoying lately. Uh, I know you guys come here for my music recommendations. Um, but a, a band that I've really enjoyed lately is an Australian band called Gang of Youths. Uh, if you like indie rock at all, it's worth checking them out. Uh, but their story is fascinating. This is an Australian band that met in church. Uh, they met at uh, the church called Hillsong in Sydney, Australia. It's, it's one of the largest megachurches in the world. It's a, a gigantic church. It's a, uh, a charismatic Pentecostal church. They have a band that tours the world. They, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big, big church. And this band uh, met while playing together in some of the, the bands at this Hillsong church. But then uh, they came to a point where they encountered a crisis of faith. Uh, they've, uh, the, the lead singer and main songwriter, uh, David Lo- Pepe, uh, he's a Polynesian gentleman, um, went through a crisis of faith, no longer would consider themselves uh, Christians uh, in the classical sense of that term, but their songs are still marked uh, by this profound wrestling with faith and doubt and longing a desire for god but fear of him not being there one song in particular uh, entitled what can i do if the fire goes out it goes this way what can i do if the fire goes out cuz i don't know if i can live without i want to taste and see if the lord is good i want to know if i'm heard and if i'm understood can you still show me the way can you still show me a light Because I was only a kid when I fell, and you left me behind. You know, I had several conversations just over the past few months uh, that really uh, amount to this kind of question. What happens to us? How do I know that the fire uh, in my own soul won't go out at some point? Uh, These are conversations that I've had with many of you as you just wrestle with the realities of faith and doubt. Uh, living in a world where sometimes we struggle to believe, a world where at times of uh, depression and anxiety and concern, God seems distant. Just within the last week, I've talked with folks going, you know what? God once seemed so near to me, but now he seems very, very far away. It used to be when I prayed, I felt something. I felt some kind of tangible sense of his presence, but now when I pray, it doesn't seem like my prayers get out past the ceiling. It feels like God is absent from me. In those moments, uh, most of us are left to assume one of two things. Either God is gone and it's his fault, right? That he was here and now he's not. Or, and this I think is much more likely, we assume there's something wrong with us, right? I used to believe enough, I used to have enough faith, I used to pray hard enough, and I used to feel something. And so now if God seems absent, well, there can't be something wrong with God. There must be something wrong with me. And will this tiny flickering ember of faith eventually go out entirely and us be left uh, with no awareness of God's presence? What can I do uh, if the fire goes out? In contemporary American Christianity, or really contemporary Western Christianity, uh, One of its marks is that it is so intensely subjective and individualistic that we're left with uh, the belief that our feelings are the reality for good or bad, right? When we feel God's nearness, we assume that everything is right and we're doing well and we're praying right. When we feel God's absence, we're left only to assume that something is fundamentally changed, right? If we were basing our faith on our experience of joy or intimacy or transcendence, then we assume that in the midst of despair, doubt, anxiety, that his absence means uh, that he's left us. Imagine, though, what it would have been like to be an Israelite uh, there in Jerusalem 3,000 or so years ago now uh, when Solomon prayed for God's glory to fill the temple. Right, this, uh, this project of building the temple uh, took uh, over seven years. Not only that, it took Solomon seven years, but his father David had spent much of his reign uh, saving and storing the supplies to build the temple. It took uh, the equivalent of millions of dollars to build it. It was a richly ornamented, uh, gold-encrusted, bejeweled temple. So it took millions of dollars, it took thousands of man hours, right? All of Jerusalem working and giving and laboring towards building this temple. And so here, when we get to to 2 Chronicles 6, and Solomon, uh, the third king of Israel, stands out in praise uh, for God's spirit, for God's glory, his presence to fill the temple. I imagine that the streets were crowded, that people were hanging out of their windows, these people who had longed for God's presence these people who had contributed so much to the building of this temple, wondering and waiting, is God going to show up? Right? Have we just built a monument uh, to a God, or have we built a temple that he himself is going going to really and truly be in? And in that moment, what they were basing their hope of God's presence on wasn't their own feelings, right? It wasn't, well, if we just believe hard enough, pray the right way, do the right things, then God's presence may or may not come. When they were there, they were basing their hope and their expectation on the promises of God, on actual and real promises that God had made to Solomon's father, David, that he would be with him, that he would be with his descendants, promises that God had made when he gave the instructions for building the temple that God would dwell in the midst of his people. So they were looking not to their own feelings, not to their own sense of God's presence, right? Which we all know in the the daily stuff of this life comes and goes. But they were basing their hope on God's promises. His promises to the king, his promises to the people, his promises to his temple. And so, as we just read, Solomon prayed. He prayed for God's presence. He prayed that God would take up habitation in his temple. And the glory of the Lord, we're told, filled the house. That like fire, it came down and consumed the sacrifices that they had made. And God moved in to his temple as his home on earth. And if we're honest, you know, I read this story and I go, yeah, okay. I could believe if I saw that, right? If it, in this world where it does seem so often like God is so distant, where sometimes I'm prone to to periods where it just all feels like wishful thinking, right, if I saw fire come down from heaven and God physically move into his temple, you go, okay, well, yeah, then, then I could believe. Then I could see something, I could know something. And yet the writers of the New Testament Uh, with one voice as they pick up all of these different Old Testament images, tell us that the situation we're in is infinitely superior to the position of those Israelites. That we have a better king than Solomon could be. That we have a truer and more permanent fire of God's presence with us and that we have a more lasting temple. That God's presence in our lives is more real and more tangible more, uh, more true than it ever was uh, for the Israelites. And so let's look at the three key elements of this story, the king, the fire, and the temple. First, the king. The man praying uh, in our story is Solomon, uh, the son of Israel's great king, David. And God had made outrageous promises to David Right, David, uh, he was, now we know, if you grew up in the church, you know the stories around David, you know about him killing Goliath, you know about uh, him becoming Israel's great king. But in the ancient world, David was a nobody. David started his life as a shepherd, so he was literally, you know, he was a working class uh, person in the agricultural economy of his day. And he was of a country that wasn't particularly prominent. It was a new nation. They had just gotten their first king. Prior to that, they were ruled by judges who were these kind of tribal leaders that that came and went. And so David ascends to the throne of a small little nation. And God promises David two outrageous things. One, one of your descendants will always rule. One of your descendants will always sit on your throne. And secondly, your throne will one day rule the entire world one day will take over the entire world. And so Solomon is David's first heir to that throne. And that's why when he comes to this moment, having completed the great building project of his rule, uh, the major crowning achievement of his kingship, when he goes to God, those two verses that we read from chapter 6, verses 41 and 42 he quotes uh, at some length sections of Psalm 89, which is one of the places where God gives his promise to David. And he says, "O Lord, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one, your anointed king. Remember your steadfast love for your servant David. Right? So what, God, what Solomon's doing is he's saying, remember that you promised Remember these promises to David. Remember your promises to my father that when he prayed or when his descendants prayed, you would answer and you would act and you would keep your promises to David. God's design uh, for his people was always that they would be led by a righteous king. That they would be led by their main political ruler, would be someone who lived in covenant relationship with God. That he would be someone who is humble, that he would be someone who is subject to God's overarching reign, that he, unlike the kings of their neighbors, that he wouldn't be a king who exalted himself to being uh, the be-all and end-all, but that he would be a king who knew that he was under the great king, that would be a king that ruled like a servant. And in doing this, that his people would fulfill really God's created design for Adam and Eve that they would rule over creation, uh, not, not callously, not domineering over it, but that they would be stewards, that they would be servants of God's created world. And God promised that he would always be faithful, uh, that he would always be present to these kings. So if you look, we didn't read it, but we're going we're gonna to look at it from, uh, throughout the sermon Starting in verse 11, so Solomon prays, God uh, fills the temple, then they make all these offerings, all these sacrifices are made to God in his new temple from verses 4 through 10. Um, you can read those on your own time. If you're an animal lover, a uh, trigger warning, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of animals killed in, uh, in the rest of chapter 7 there um, in the dedication of this temple. But in verse 11, God appears to Solomon. And he basically says, Solomon, I've heard your prayers. I've heard what you asked me to do. And I will fill this temple. And we're going to talk about some of those promises that he made to fill his temple. But if you look at verse 17, uh, chapter 7, verse 17, he says, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I've covenanted with David your father saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Notice that language. If you do this, then I will do my part. If you walk with me faithfully, then you'll remain and your, your descendants will remain on the throne. Verse 19, but if and worship them, forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given you. In this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Notice that God's covenant relationship with Solomon uh, was populated with that if-then language, right? If you obey, if you walk with me, then I will be your God and I will bless you. If your people continue to follow after you and keep my covenant, Then I will keep my presence in the temple. And of course, if you know uh, the rest of the story, this is essentially the high point of Solomon's life. Uh, The rest of his life is marked mostly by tragedy. Uh, He doesn't, uh, by and large, continue after uh, the way that David had ruled the people. He does begin to become a king like the other nations. He builds, right after he builds for, for God the temple, he builds for himself a palace. He becomes one of the wealthiest rulers of his day. He takes a a household full of wives uh, from the other nations. He begins to worship the gods that they bring in with them into those nations. And so Solomon begins to to show that he is an inadequate son of David, that he is not the faithful king. And the people uh, then follow in step with him, and they begin to worship other gods. Ezekiel 10 uh, shows us really the, the photo negative of this image. So, if, if uh, 2 Chronicles 7 is God's glory coming down and into the temple, Ezekiel the prophet has this vision of God's glory leaving the temple, processing out of Jerusalem, and leaving as his people are cast out into exile. Because the if then relationship broke down, God's people uh, were not faithful to their God. All of this. All of this paints really the tragedy of Israel's life with God. That having a God who moved towards them in grace, a God who who freed them from slavery in Egypt, a God who promised to be their God, that they broke a covenant. When he was faithful, they were faithless. You know, many of us feel instinctively like we have to relate to God on the same if-then basis that Solomon related to God, right? If we're honest, uh, most of us have some sense that our spiritual life is governed by some type of if-then formulas, right? If I do my part, then God will do his part, right? If I believe enough, if I pray hard enough, if I'm fervent enough in my faith, if I give Uh, my money away, if I uh, try to to raise my children the right way, if I do my part, then God will bless me, then God will cause good things to happen to me, then I'll have the life that I'm after. We believe that that God's presence in our lives is contingent on that kind of if-then wager. If we keep our part of the formula, then God will give us his But of course, the message of the gospel is that uh, there is a greater son of David who came after Solomon, after Solomon's heirs, after all of these failed kings who were unable to keep their human half of God's covenant. There came another king who fully kept the demands of God's covenant, and he did it for us. Right? That's why the New Testament begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Matthew goes on through a long genealogy to trace the birth of Jesus all the way back to David to show that he was David's heir, that he is the king that was promised, the true and better son of David. The whole bit about being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. The reason we get together and on Christmas Eve we'll sing that beautiful once in royal David city is that the, the, the gospel authors are at pains to show that Jesus came in the line of David. He came to be what all of David's sons could never be, what David himself could never be. When we come under the reign of the true son of David by faith, when we place our faith in him, God deals with us not on the basis of our rising and falling faith. Not on the basis of our keeping the if-then ends of the covenant. But he relates to us as he relates to his son. He relates to us on the basis of Jesus' perfect faith. His perfect faithfulness. His perfect prayers. Solomon stands in front of all the people and praise that God would give his presence to his people, that the glory of the Lord would fall on the temple. In John 14, Jesus tells us, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever. Right, Just like the, the Israelites looked at the prayers of Solomon by the temple and said, okay, well, God's going to answer this one because that's David's kid. Right, God, we, this is, God, I'm, not, I'm not banking on God to answer my prayers. I'm trusting that God is going to answer the prayers of Solomon. How much more when we look and go, okay, I'm not banking on God answering my prayers or responding to my faith or my goodness. I'm banking on the fact that God will answer the prayers of his son. Amen. That God, when, the, when God the son asks God the father to grant us access by faith to his presence, that the father will answer the prayer of the son. That when the, father, when the Son asked the Father to give the Spirit to His people and to fill our lives with His presence, yeah, yeah. that the Father could no more turn His back on us than He could turn His back on His only Son. That it's not the fervency of our prayers or our faithfulness to which God responds. It's His love and His affection and His eternal bonds with God the Son. Solomon prayed, O oh Lord, do not reject your anointed one. That word, anointed one in Hebrew, is Messiah. Don't reject your Messiah. And the Father won't. And therefore, the Father can't reject, can't withdraw his presence from those who hide their lives uh, in Jesus by faith. So the king uh, calls down the fire. That's what we're going to look at next. When Solomon finished praying, we're told that fire uh, fell from heaven, consuming the sacrifice in filling the temple. But Solomon prays for God's presence to come, and it does. David, uh, the greater son, or Jesus, the greater son of David, at his ascension in Acts chapter one, tells his disciples this. He says in Acts one, verse four, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there in Acts 2, uh, we're told that as the disciples uh, met in the upper room after Jesus left, after his ascension, and prayed, that they heard what sounded like the sound of a mighty wind coming through the room, and they saw what appeared to them to be fire coming down from heaven and falling on each of them, right? God's presence by his Spirit coming to be with his people. This is why Jesus could tell his disciples, it's actually better for you if I go. Right? It's better for you after the resurrection if I ascend to the Father so that I can have the Spirit poured out on you. We said that it seems like it would be easier to believe if we had something that we could see and know, whether it be the fire uh, in the temple of Jerusalem, whether it be the physical presence of Jesus with us. What Jesus says is, no, by faith, it's actually better. The only thing better than having God with you in the person of Jesus is to have God in you by the power of his Spirit. And he promises that he'll give his Spirit to his people so that heaven and earth would no longer be separated by an eternal gap, but it's so that the life of God himself could be experienced in and through the life of his people. We've talked throughout Advent of this downward movement of God that we see throughout the Old Testament that we see culminating in the birth of Christ. And that truly is the, that is God coming all the way down to us. God born in the flesh. But there is another step after, after the birth of Jesus at Christmas, after his resurrection, is God coming nearer to us even still through the gift of his Spirit that he gives us his spirit so that he could actually be in our flesh and in our lives. Two different days in Jerusalem, separated by about a thousand years, the Israelites uh, gather and watch the Solomon praise, and the fire comes down from heaven. And then the disciples gather in the upper room to wait for fire to come down from heaven so that they would have uh, the gift of the Spirit. The highest gift of the gospel. We we talk a lot about all of the grace that God gives us in the gospel. right? The gift of being pardoned from from the guilt of our sin, free from sin's punishment, gifted uh, with the gift of, of life in the church, gifted with the gift of the blessings that God gives us. But the highest blessing of the gospel is that God gives us himself, right? Grace, which we love to talk about, isn't a substance, right? Grace isn't a thing that God gives us, right? It's not this force that passes around. It's not some other substance. Grace is God himself giving us himself. We who had, by our own sin, by our own wandering, lost him that God gives us his very self. A couple of quotes for you. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, an English Puritan uh, theologian, says, Not only does God bless us with all other good things, but above all, by communicating himself and his own blessedness, the sun not only enriches the earth, but glads and refreshes all with shedding immediately its own wings of light and warmth, which is so pleasant to behold and to enjoy. And thus does God in Christ, the Son of Righteousness. What he's saying is the way the sun warms the earth is by giving itself, right? The sun gives its own heat, its own light, its own warmth, in order to give light and warmth to the world. And he's saying that God gives himself, he gives his own presence, his own righteousness, his own joy, his own spirit. That the gift that God gives us by faith is the very presence of God himself by his spirit. William Tyndale said, where the spirit is, there is always summer and there are always good fruits. Right? Where the spirit shines, where the spirit is, there is always life. There is always fruit. And friends, our certainty of the spirit isn't about how we feel. It's not about whether he feels near to us or feels far from us. It's not about whether we feel joy or we feel sorrow. The, the, the Spirit is the gift of Jesus. right? If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. To have Jesus is to have His Spirit. And so we know that He is always with us and always within us. And then finally, the temple. The place uh, where God's Spirit falls. You know, if you were to ask any Israelite, uh, of Solomon's day, after this day, where does God live? Right? Where can I go and meet with God? They would have been able to give you an address. They could say, oh, God, Yahweh? Yeah, he lives. Uh, you, ta- you go down, you go up the mountain, you go to Jerusalem, you hang a right, you go up the Temple Mount, uh, you'll see a big gold building, and that's where God lives. If you want to see God, uh, go to God's house, because that's where he lives, now, obviously, uh, the Jews had a theology uh, through the Old Testament that didn't believe that God was confined to the temple, right? They, they didn't, it wasn't a, a, super, a, uh, a superstitious belief that believed if I didn't go to the right place at the right time that I couldn't know God, right? They knew that God was omnipresent, that he was everywhere, that he filled all things, that he was near to all people. But what they believed and what they knew and what was true was that God was specially present in his temple. Uh, One of the preferred ways that the Old Testament refers to the temple is that the ark, the the very center of the temple, was God's footstool. So God was enthroned in heaven, but his feet rested in the temple. That that was the, the thin place where heaven and earth met. That you could certainly pray to God anywhere, you could know God anywhere. But when you went to the temple, that was the place where though he's everywhere, that you could, in a special way, know his presence, because he had promised that he would always be there, that he would be there when you went there to find him. Now, the New Testament authors do something uh, truly amazing, truly uh, stunning with this promise uh, from the Old Testament that God would be in his temple. If you look at First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says this, he says, as you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You hear what Peter's saying Is he's saying... Uh, God still has an address. There is still a place where God has promised to be. And it's not one address uh, in one place in Jerusalem. It's wherever his people are. It's wherever his people meet. So in some sense, you could say that, that you know, where, where can I meet with God? Oh, well, go, go down to 426 Macduff Avenue South right, past the the sketchy gambling parlor and then turn left, and there you'll find uh, the presence of God, that God's house, that God's address literally is in millions of places all over this world, whether it's in the large, well-manicured campuses of suburban megachurches, whether it's in uh, the small apartments of Chinese house churches whether it's in hidden Afghan caves where men and women gather to worship Jesus fearing for their lives, that the church of Jesus still has an address, that there is still a place where you can go knowing that God has promised to meet with me, that God has promised to be. And that doesn't mean that every time you go to church, you're going to leave going, oh man, I was worried that maybe God was distant or I was worried that maybe his presence felt far or that faith was hard, but now I feel that it's easy. No, but it does mean that that in the rhythm of being with God's people, in the rhythm of opening his word and gathering around his table and taking the bread and wine, and the rhythm of, of being with one another in the difficult walk of faith, that we really, in a tangible way, experience God himself, the Spirit living his life in us and through us and giving himself to us. faith is hard. There are times uh, where we wonder whether or not it's all true. There's times where we can feel the words of that song. What do I do if the fire goes out, uh, when my faith uh, seems weak? The prophet Isaiah promises us when he talks of the coming Messiah, Jesus, he says that when he comes, uh, he says, a, uh, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out In a bruised reed, he will not break. That Jesus is gentle with us in our lagging faith. That he takes our half-burning, half-alive faith and our weak faith and he breathes new life into it. That he gives it life as he gives us himself. The incredible good news, friends, is that you are, simply by trusting, in the faith of Jesus, not your own strength, not your own faith, but by trusting in Jesus' goodness and his love, you are the bearers of God's eternal fire, that he has given his presence to us in the midst of a dark world, in the midst of a world that that feels God's absence, that wonders whether uh, he's abandoned it entirely. As we live our life as imperfect as it is, As we love our neighbors as half-heartedly as we do so, we offer the fire of God's presence to light a dark world with his love and his beauty and his goodness and his truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you are our Emmanuel. That by your birth in the flesh, you came to dwell with us and among us so that we could live our lives in you and with you. We thank you, Spirit, that you, uh, in falling on us as the gift, uh, the gift of our faith, Lord, that you are as really and truly present to us uh, as our family and friends. Lord, we know that in this life, we don't see you yet. Uh, and so, because of that, there's times where it's hard to believe. There's, tar- there's times where faith feels like a fight. And so, Lord Jesus, when we're weak and when our faith is faltering, we pray that we would place our faith in the one who never falters, uh, the one whose grip never weakens. And, Lord Jesus, we do pray uh, that you would nourish faith in us, that by your Spirit you would blow on the barely burning embers, uh, of our of our faith, that you would nurture uh, the fire of faith within us, that you would get us, Lord, through our pilgrim journey through this life, uh, safely to the home where we will know you face to face. Lord, we're told in that day that there will be no temple because the Lord and the Lamb himself will be our presence, will be our temple. And so, Lord, until then, help us to live this life of faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.